Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. But the point is not to leave you in that fear. Are you actively progressing? Are you growing in Christ's likeness? The end of January 2021, uh, we had winter Bible study at the church. And I went to the first session, um, but there was a session I knew it was going to be on the assurances of salvation. And I didn't get to go to that session, but I watched the video afterwards, and I wrote in my, in my uh, journal that I keep with my Bible, I wrote uh, the assurances of salvation on this, on, in my journal that day, watching that lesson online. And I began to really grapple with this question, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm saved? And uh, so for me, like I was saved, uh, I, you know, I, I was, I received Christ when I was seven years old. I, I, I prayed at a, a camp. I was, you know, I was too young to be attending the camp. I was just there with my dad because he was uh, preaching at that camp. But I, I prayed. Um, and, and the thing is, oftentimes we hear that story from people like, oh, well, I, you know, I prayed when, you know, when I was four, I prayed when I was five or, and a lot of times that story ends with this kind of like, you know, but I realized like 10 years later that I just said words. Like that I just kind of, like I went, I did it because my friends were doing it or I just followed along with the pastor, right? And what people are realizing is at some point in their life, they're realizing that just saying out loud a series of, of magic words isn't it, right? There's no sinner's prayer, right? We know that there's not just like, just say out loud these four lines, good to go accomplished, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. And, and, and as I began to grapple with this question, even though I had this time that I could look back on and say there was this moment where I was seven years old and I prayed this prayer, um, what I realized is that I had to take a, a hard look at the sin in my life too. Because not, not only did I have sin, like we all have sin on a daily basis, right? Um, the Psalms tells us that we can't even perceive our unintentional sins, right? So uh, the question I had to grapple with was not just the, the little sins here or there, but like the habitual sins, the ones that I'm, I was living in, that I just, you know, I had made excuses for, I just kind of hand waved and I said, oh, these aren't a big deal. Like, I'll just, I'll deal with these later. And, and as I would look at my sin and as I would look into God's word, I would have to reconcile and say, okay, am I, am I saved? And if I am saved, what, what, what does this sin have to do with it? Like, what does that say about my salvation? What does that mean for me if I have this sin in my life, but I'm supposed to be a child of God? Here's the deal. If you haven't grappled with this question, how do I know that I'm saved? You need to. You need to understand what the Bible says about how we know. Because there's a good chance, I know that I did it for a lot of my life, is that you have staked your assurance, your understanding of what it means to be saved on something that the Bible doesn't actually teach. On something, you know, if, again, if, you're, if your salvation is staked around this one moment where you prayed this one prayer, the Bible doesn't say, just keep looking back at that one moment, good. Nothing else matters as long as you have grasped hold of that time when you prayed through that prayer on that one day. That's not how salvation works. So we have to understand what does the Bible actually teach me about how to know that I'm saved? So we're going to spend the next six weeks diving into 1 John. My goal is to equip you with the answers to probably life's biggest question. How do I actually know that I know God? How do I know I'm saved? Um, and, why, and why should you care about this? Listen. Go read Matthew chapter 7. Jesus tells a bunch of people who show up on the last day and say, you know, we did all these things for you. We served you. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And, and, 
And listen, when I tell you that should be the scariest passage, it is. It is the scariest passage in the Bible. Because the reality is, and what what we're going to see John's going to say, is that we can deceive ourselves. We can believe, based on things that are not in the Bible, that we've achieved some level of safety. and, And maybe we have or maybe we haven't. So we need to understand this question. Before I can be assured, right, I need to be saved. So what do I have to do to be saved? Romans 10.9 says I have to confess that Jesus is Lord, and I have to believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Okay, confession, let's start with that one. Confession is twofold. Confession is, is the act of repentance, but it is, it is this side of, Jesus, I admit that all my ways are sinful and all my ways are wrong, that I don't have what it takes to get to heaven. And the second side of confession and repentance is, Jesus, actually, you are the only way to heaven. You are the only way that I can get to the Father, that I can get to eternal life. So I need to confess that I can't do it and God can do it. That's the act of repentance. And then it says, believe. But it says, this is weird to me. It was weird to me for a while. It says, believe in what? Believe in the resurrection. Believe that God raised him from the dead. Why does it say that? Well, the reality is the resurrection, as Paul tells us, it, it, it is the completion. It's the proof that the death on the cross actually worked. Why? Because anybody in this room can die on a cross. You can. You can die on a cross for your own sins and spend eternity paying for them. That doesn't help you if Jesus just died. I mean, it, it, it would, but we wouldn't know if it actually worked, except that he came back to show us that he was not held captive because he wasn't paying for his own sins. He wasn't paying for his own penalty. So his return is what shows us that it worked. So what you're believing in when you believe on the resurrection is you're believing in the gospel. So let's talk about the gospel. Okay, I'm going to give you five simple points so you can understand the gospel. This is the, this is the easiest way I can break down the gospel for you. Okay, the first point is God created and ordered all things. God created and ordered all things. And in the, in the pinnacle of his creation, he made man in his image. Now, I mean humans, right? He made men and women in his image, but he didn't make anything else in his image. Right, So we have something special with God that no one else has. So God created and ordered all things, and he made man in his image. Sin entered the world, but not just that. Not just that. So the second point is sin entered the world, but not just that. Romans 3.23 excuse me, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin's not just some abstract thing happening in the world unrelated to you. You are affected by it. You're corrupted by sin. You're broken by sin. You have to pay a price for sin. Which brings us to point three. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. You owe God a debt you can't pay. You can never hope to pay. Which brings us to point four. Jesus. 100% God, 100% man. He lived a perfect life, and he paid my sin's debt. And if I believe on that, God's grace saves me. We're saved by grace. Grace, inherently, is something, the definition, right, is something you cannot earn. Unearned, not deserved. Which brings us to point five. Jesus rose from the dead and proved that all of this had been accomplished. That's the whole gospel. Now you can, you should understand it to a much greater extent than these five brief points. But this gives us a summary to understand what we're going to talk about. So now I know I have to confess and believe in the gospel to be saved. And once I have confessed and believed in the gospel... Now we can begin to talk about assurance. Now, let's talk, let's actually, let's back up. Let's talk about a little bit more about the gospel. What does it actually take to believe in the gospel? Let's talk about that for a second. 
Is it a head knowledge? Like you can understand those five points and not be saved. That's kind of that's the kind of my whole point of this. That's a scary reality. You can actually have those five things in your head and understand them in your head, and that doesn't cut it. So there are three aspects of the gospel we need to understand. Okay? There are three different ways that we kind of view the gospel. They all work together, but but you have to understand how you where you could be stopping short. The first way, the first aspect of understanding the gospel is the story or the context, which is what I just told you. The way it unfolds, right? So that's just one aspect of the gospel, and you can know the story and it have no effect in your life, right? The second uh, aspect is the facts. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, and he needed to be 100% man because only men owed God, and he needed to be 100% God because only God could provide what was needed, right? That's a fact of the gospel. The fact is that Jesus lived a perfect life, not a really good one, an absolutely perfect life. The fact is that Jesus acted as the substitute for your death, and the fact that Jesus came back to life. Uh, there's a really cool series, get it from me later, there's, a, there's an apologetic series on Right Now Media where he goes through four main questions of the Bible and he shows you how the only logical understanding of the resurrection is that it did in fact happen. He, I mean, he basically proves it. I watched, it's 15 minutes, and I was blown away by how he does it. The fact is, Jesus rose from the dead. So this brings us to the third aspect of the gospel. The significance of the gospel is a promised result of eternal life. The significance of the gospel is a promised result of eternal life. How do I know if I've received the significance of the gospel. How do I know, how do I know if I get it? Not, not get it like in my head, but get it, receive it, uh, attain it. How do I get that eternal life? That is the significance of the gospel. So let me put it to you like this. If, if I uh, walk up to a man in a, in a lobby of a building and I say, hey, did you hear that the building is on fire? And he's reading his newspaper and he says, yeah, I, I believe that. And he continues to read his newspaper. There's only two ways I can explain that behavior. Either one, he's picked this moment. This is when he's going to go. Or there's something deficient in his belief that the building is on fire. He may understand it in his head as a fact, but the belief has not spurred any significance in his life. Nothing has changed about his behavior. So if he believes in a significant way that the building is on fire, it should change his behavior. Think about it like this. There's a story in the Old Testament where the people of Israel have been plagued by snakes. They're being bitten. And God tells Moses to, uh, to build this uh, snake uh, object and hang it in the wilderness. And anybody who's been bit by a snake can look on the snake and be healed from the poison. So think about it like this. If somebody was sitting in their tent, bitten by a snake, they could intellectually believe that this snake would heal them. But unless it has the significance in their life to go look at it, they have not believed it correctly. The significance of their belief is not present, right? James talks about the, even the demons believe and they shudder. And, and people, I think, really abuse that text. But here's what James's point is. The, demon, the significance of the demons' understanding of who God is is that they shudder. So what is the significance of the gospel in your life? Is, are you indifferent to it? Does it not change anything about, about the way you live or about the way you operate or the way you think? It may not have a significance in your life. And if it doesn't have a significance in your life, you have to ask yourself the question, am I really saved? Do I really understand the gospel in the way that saves me? So the first moment that you repent and believe in the gospel, like the first time that you, that you do this process of confession and repentance and, and belief, um, you, you attain a positional change to God. Okay. So your position starting out in life to God is as in opposition, as enemies, separated, okay? When you 
when you repent, confess, believe, and you have a significance of the gospel in your life, you attain a positional change and you are made right with God. He declares you right with him. That is the positional change, the objective truth. That cannot be affected, cannot be changed, but to a certain extent, it also can't be felt in and of itself. So you're saved by grace through faith, but then you get what you get what's called, we call that justification, but then you get what's called sanctification. Okay, so sanctification is the subjective experience of the positional reality. Your position's been changed. That's an objective truth. It happens in that moment that the gospel has significance to you. And then as you are sanctified, as you experience that salvation through your life, it reveals to you that that positional change has occurred. And it happens over a lifetime. We also call this experiential salvation. So assurance, what we're going to try to talk about today, what assurance is, it's the subjective experience of the objective truth that you're right with God. It's the way you experience that objective, unchanging truth in your life. Now, the way that we, that we see assurance is through certain tests and certain comparisons. Um, but the thing that we'll see about these tests and comparisons is that they're always happening in the present. They're always happening uh, in the immediate moment. It's never asked if your assurance is something that has happened. Have, did you pray a prayer? Did you have this moment where you converted to Christianity? If you have that, you're sure that you have this positional reality. No, it says, look at your life right now and experience whether or not that positional change has occurred. So why, why is it always in the present? Because the only proof of the significant, it's the only proof that the significance of the gospel has taken root in your life. Um, if the evidence is not present, here's what that, that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation. So you, so we have to keep these separate. Once that, once that positional reality changes, it never unchanges. It's always there. What the assurance does is it lets you experience that that is the case. And if you don't have uh, if you don't have that evidence in the subjective reality, you can't ever be sure of this. It's a guessing game if it's ever occurred in your life. So um, if, if examination, if the process of finding assurance leads you to uncertainty about that positional reality, what, it, what should that cause you to do? Repent, confess, believe, like all the things that get you to that positional reality in the first time, in the first place. So the whole point of it being in the moment is I look at the subjective reality of my life in this moment and I say, does this reflect a positional change to God? And if I see that it doesn't, it should spur desperately that I correct that reality. That's not to say that every time it doesn't look this way, I got to get resaved. I'm not losing my salvation, getting resaved, losing my salvation. What's happening is because I can only see in this moment that I don't look like I'm positionally straight with God, I repent to make sure that I am. You, what you're trying to do is put your sin to death. You're trying to live according to that positional reality. The, and when you live according to that positional reality, what happens? You're certain. You know. You know that you're saved because you can look at the, the, at the way your life is unfolding and it matches that positional reality, and then there's no doubt. So where does 1 John fit in all this? 1 John is where we get the tests of assurance that we measure by. So let's talk about 1 John for a second. Uh, despite the name of the book, it is technically an anonymous letter. It technically does not have uh, a claim to who wrote it. Now, um, I'm not going to get into all of the debate, but it's pretty settled. The same John that wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of John, and Revelation wrote 1st John. So we're talking about John the Apostle that Jesus loved, okay? That is the author of 1 John. Um, 
It was probably written, it's probably one of the latest books in the Bible. It was probably written between 85 and 100 AD. So this is the very end. John is the only disciple that, uh, that dies of old age. The rest are, are martyred. Um, so John writes this towards the end of his career. He is um, probably overseeing a series of house churches in Ephesus at the time. And this, this would have been something he wrote to the, that collection of house churches in Ephesus. Um, it's not in a typical letter format. If you go look at Paul's letters, they always have an intro. They always have a uh, kind of this greeting at the beginning. It's from me to you, and and th- these are my greetings that I want to say. And then and then he has like a conclusion at the end that's also in a letter type format. So this doesn't have that, which leads us to um, some ambiguity about what this what this letter is meant to be, or like what it's what it's trying to accomplish. Uh, the best thing I could see is. It's, it's not in this Pauline style either. So Paul Paul does this thing where he's like theology, 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 application, application, application. That's, that's how he writes his letters. This is more like a poetic sermon. It's like John wrote it as a way to address a bunch of things in the church, and he uses a technique called amplification. So what he's going to do is, in the first half of the book, generally, he's going to say God is light. And in the second half of the book, generally, he's going to say God is love. And as he talks about these two major themes, he's going to just like revolve around certain points and, and keep amplifying them, keep building them up, keep showing them to be true. And uh, so it's, it's very different than, um, than how Paul writes most of his letters. And then, and then we got to understand the context. John is writing to, a, uh, he's writing to the churches in Ephesus, but what's happening is, there are some heretics that are leaving the church. They've left the fellowship and they are trying to convince other people to come with them, right? And so he's not writing to the heretics. He's writing to the church to encourage them uh, to hold fast to the correct gospel, to understand what they believe, why they believe it, and why they shouldn't believe these heretics that are leaving the church, right? So this, this is meant to be an encouraging letter, uh, and and we got to keep that in the front of our brain because there's points that it doesn't feel that way, especially um, if your life isn't reflecting that positional reality of being right with God. This this is a hard book, and it should be. And and I would encourage you not to shy away from it, but to really lean into it and and adjust your life based on what the Word of God says. So um, we're going to start in First um, John chapter one, starting in verse one, um, and and. Let's get into the text real fast. Um, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you two may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. Okay, listen, this intro is cram-packed, so stick with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get through it a little bit quicker than, than the rest, but I can't just skip it. There's so much that Paul there that John is saying here that's that's very important. The first thing he's got this phrase in verse one, what is from the beginning? Okay. It's what is from the beginning. So this is the same guy that wrote John. And in the beginning of in John 1 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So it's a very similar starting point, right? And even for John 1 and now first John 1 are echoing creation. They're echoing this in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? And so uh, the interesting thing, though, is that the first, so the first word in my Bible, in, from the Greek, it translates, my Bible translates it, what? This is um, starting us out with an implication of an object, okay? So, so this is really interesting. If you jump to the end of verse 1, it says, concerning the word of life. Now, this is, this looks like he's implying an object that is the gospel or the message of Christ or or the or the bible right it's he's implying not a person but a thing okay but then the interesting thing is in in between he says we've heard it we've seen it we've looked at it we've touched it and he's actually implying uh, we know that Jesus is the word of god he's the logos he he was in the beginning with God. And so what John is actually doing here, he's implying in, in one way 
this object of the gospel and the message of Christ, and in another way, the man of Christ, the reality of the person. And what he's doing is he's connecting these two things. They're, they're not separating. They're not separable. These two things are connected. And he's, he's showing you that he has experienced firsthand the reality of the man, Jesus, and the divinity, the word of God. And they were in one person. They were connected. So, uh, we're gonna go, we're gonna begin to see some of the heresies, uh, that are, uh, that are cropping up in these churches based on what Paul, or I keep saying Paul because we talk about Paul so much, but, um, what, some of these heresies that John is addressing. So, uh, some of the heresies, they would have made Jesus, uh, only a man. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Christ. He wasn't God, right? Or they would have claimed a special knowledge and a special understanding of God that was separate from Jesus. So they had additional knowledge that wasn't... Now, in the second century, we see the Gnostics creep up, and their whole thing is special knowledge. We call this pre-Gnosticism. So this is the early forms of it in the early church. Uh, and then uh, another one of the heresies would have been a complete throwing out of morals, because the idea was, uh, God's cleansed me. I, I've, I, I have this special knowledge, this special place with God, and I don't sin anymore. So, so it, to the extent that even what I do that clearly is wrong, that's not sin. Like, I don't, I can't sin, but not because I'm not sinning, but just because it's not sin. Does that make sense? So they, they're justifying throwing out moral behavior. So the other thing Don, uh, John is doing when he says he's heard it, he's seen it, he's looked at it, he's touched it, is he's showing an eyewitness and firsthand knowledge of Jesus, the man who was God, and also of the Christ, the Messiah, the God in human form. And because he has this firsthand knowledge, it's it's like a slap in the face to these people who say they have special knowledge. He's like, you have special knowledge? I touched him. I heard him. I saw him. Like I handled him. He was real. I have firsthand eyewitness knowledge of him. It's also building John's credibility because because he's an eyewitness to Christ, you can take what he says and believe it. So then he transitions into verse two, and um, and it's interesting. He he connects these in a in a cool way. He says in the end of verse one, he says the word of life, and then he says verse two, the life, and he, what he's saying is the life, the word of life, the life in the word was revealed to be eternal life. So again, what he's doing right here is he's connecting Jesus with eternal life. They're one and the same. So these people who are going out of the church and saying, well, we have special knowledge and we figured out a way to be with God and have eternal life, but it doesn't involve Jesus. He's like, impossible. There's no eternal life that's not connected to Jesus. They're one and the same. They cannot be split up. So, uh, excuse me. So, and then he says, and we told you about this. We've proclaimed it to you. From our firsthand knowledge, we handed this down to you. So look at verse three again. For what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. He says, okay, he says, so that. So this is revealing of purpose. Whenever they say so that, this is the purpose of what I'm doing. I proclaim this to you so that you may have fellowship. The word there is uh, koinonia. That's the Greek word. It, it's a fellowship. It's to know in a relational way. So again, this is another slap in the face to people who would have said, well, we have a special knowing, a special knowledge. He said, no, no, no. You, you can only have a knowing of God in a relationship with him. And part of the way that you have a relationship with God is that we are connected through the people who had a relationship with Jesus in person. They have proclaimed it to us. This is who Jesus was. And if you have a relationship with them, then you, you have that relationship by proxy. This is what we call discipleship, right? We're all trying to be like Jesus and we're all having fellowship in that direction. So look, so look at what's going on. The heretics are pulling away from the fellowship, and John is doing this. Check this out. He says, you have to have fellowship with us because of what we've proclaimed, because we proclaimed it because we saw it, we touched it, we experienced it. We touched and experienced and saw this man who was Jesus Christ, and this man who was Jesus Christ, he was the Messiah. He was God. He was eternal life, and he was in the very beginning with God. 
All of these things connect. So if you pull out of this faith and this fellowship with us, you don't have fellowship with eternal life. You cannot have fellowship with eternal life separate from the faith that we're believing in that connects you to us. So when you go away and have a different faith, you don't have eternal life. So if you leave this faith, if you leave this church, you get nothing. But if you stay in the fellowship, you get eternity. Now, is John saying that, like, this kind of sounds a little bit like, if you leave my church, you're going to hell. Like, like, like a membership problem. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you deny the faith, then the, the fellowship that you say you had with, with God or with Jesus didn't exist, doesn't exist. It never existed. You didn't lose it. You didn't have it. That's a very different thing. And then in verse 4, he says, uh, he says it completes his joy. This is like the joy of a father who watches his kids make smart and healthy choices. right? It's like a pride welling up in John because people are doing what, what he has proclaimed to them to do. So look in verse uh, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he says in verse 5, he says, this is the message we have heard from him. In John eight twelve, it says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? John wrote both of these. So what John is saying is, I got this straight from Jesus, straight from the guy that was there at the beginning, whose eternal life, who's connected to God. He's saying, God is light. So we found our first major theme, God is light. Now, there's an image here of being able to see where you're going because it's light. I, I, I can see where I'm going because I have fellowship with light, right? But there's a practical mimicking of Jesus' life. Jesus is both the, the image of light in a way of saying, this is the way you should go. I can see where I should go in Jesus, but also the practical way of mimicking how Christ lived. We call it Christ-likeness. If I live like Christ, I'm walking in light. So to say we're Christians and actively walk in opposition to how Jesus lived, John says you're a liar. You're lying. You're deceiving yourself. Now notice there's an objective statement here. He says, if we walk in the light. So it, we've had the significance of believing. So Jesus' blood cleanses us from all our sins. That is a done deal. Once the significance and the reality of the gospel is in your life and your position changes to God, it never unchanges. Objective reality. He's, and and he's, what he's not saying is that because you're walking in the light, you got saved. He's saying because you got saved, you're walking in the light. Right? And so it's a, it's a correlation, not a causation. Um, look, at, look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his words are not in us. Okay, he says, so he's now said, three, I think, three times, if we say. These are quotes of these heretics. Right. That, I mean, that's what we that was what we pull out of this is that he's quoting these arguments that they're hearing from these people that are leaving the church. And he's saying, if we say, if you've heard this argument. Right. And then he calls them liars. He says, um, verse eight. So, so let's think about verse eight for a second. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. OK, you can be in three camps on this verse. Camp one. You might be constantly agonizing over your day-to-day -day sin, over the fact that you're not perfect, that you fall. And you're looking at your day-to-day -day sin, and you're like, how can I be saved? But here's the thing. This verse actually comforts at you because this verse is talking about people who are denying that they have sin. And what he's saying is a mark of, true, uh, of a true believer is that you look at your sin, and it should bother you. It should bother you because it doesn't look like Christ. So if you're agonizing over your, you know, kind of uh, mess ups on a daily basis, 
stay calm. That's actually a good thing because it shows that the Spirit of God is in you telling you that's not how you should be behaving. That's one camp. The second camp is you could be not worried about sin at all. That's who he's talking about right here. These are people that don't have fellowship with God. They're like, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm good to go. That is not, he, he says, you sin every, I told you, Psalm, uh, I think it's 1912. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. You don't even know the magnitude of the ways that you sin on a daily basis. If you think you've made it through one day of your entire life without sin, I have bad news for you. That did not happen. And that's the whole point, right? So he's saying, if you're not worried about sin, this is you. You have no fellowship. And then the third camp is you might be worried about a habitual sin. You might be worried because you have, you have a sin that has pinned you down, something that's holding you in place. You can't seem to beat this sin. So here's the thing. What that should do, if you're worried about this habitual sin, because what does habitual sin show you? The posi- the, it doesn't reflect the positional reality. You are uncertain that you've ever accomplished that positional reality because you are walking in darkness. But that doesn't necessarily mean you are or you aren't saved. That means you don't know right now. And what that should cause you to do is repent and believe and confess and then reflect that positional reality in that moment. It's a cause to bring you back to the, to the certain position. Here's the question for you. As we go through 1 John, are you living in sin apathetically? Because you're either, you're, you either shouldn't be so confident that you were saved or you just, you just aren't. And, and, and that should scare you. But the point is not to leave you in that fear. The point is to show you that, that there's an easy way to reflect the certainty that you know God. But if you're just living in the apathy of a sin, James says, how do you know you're saved? What what gives you the confidence to think you've had fellowship with God? And then uh, look at verse 9. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay. If we, if we repent and confess, God will cleanse us. He is faithful. There's no version of God who, where he like forgets to get around to it or he's like, ah, I don't know. I don't really like your tone. No, when we have a genuine approach to God of confession and repentance, he is faithful. God is reliable. He does come through. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he would lie, nor a, or a son of man that he would change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? God is faithful. And then in verse 10, we see all rejection. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. All rejection calls God a liar. All of it. What, what I've all told you guys this a thousand times in Genesis, the only tactic of the enemy through all of human history has been this. Did God really say? He called God a liar right off the bat. And that's all we've been dealing with in all of human history ever since then. Everything you deal with is a version of believing God is a liar. When you steal, you don't believe God's a provider. And so on and so forth. There's a thousand other examples. Okay, look at chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay. All right. Uh, John gives us a purpose at the beginning, right? He says, uh, I am writing these things uh, to you so that, so that, the purpose It's to encourage you not to live in sin and to encourage you that when you fail, you have an advocate in Christ. You have an advocate before the Father. You have a way to be made right, okay? So it's, again, this is meant to be encouraging. And then he says in verse 2, he says propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation. That word means satisfaction, to satisfy the debt, to satisfy our sin debt. Okay, now listen. Here's what we're not about to do. We're not about to dive into the entire discussion 
of Calvinism and Arminianism. Okay, But here's what we are going to do. When we approach a text, we have to handle it faithfully. The goal is not to apply a framework to the Bible and then fit every verse into that framework and do whatever mental uh, backflips I have to do to make sure it says what I want to believe. We have to handle a text faithfully, verse by verse. So we're not going to jump into that whole debate. We're just going to handle this one verse. There's four ways to read this verse. Okay, so... He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay? So, there's three unsatisfactory ways to read this verse, and one satisfactory way. The first unsatisfactory way is this. He is not only, uh, not, not only is he the satisfaction for us, the readers of this letter, but also for all believers. That's not, that's not in there because the only Greek words are holos cosmos, the whole world. Uh, I literally saw a text that had put in parentheses uh, all believers throughout the world. But that's not in the text. So that's not a satisfactory uh, inclusion, right? The second way to read this is uh, not only is he the only way for us to be, to be satisfied with God, but he's the only way for everyone to be satisfied with God. Okay, here's the problem. The emphasis of this, uh, of this verse is not on the way in which we're satisfied. It is that Jesus is the satisfaction. It's talking about the satisfaction. So you have to, you, again, you have to add extra words to make this about exclusivity. He's not only the, the way we get satisfied, but he's the only way that anyone gets satisfied. That's kind of an argument against like, you know, Allah can't also give you a way to heaven, right? But that's not what this verse is dealing with. He's not saying Jesus is the, the only way. That's implied, but he's, he's talking about the, that Jesus satisfies our sins and not only ours, right? So the third way is not only is he the satisfaction for our sin, but he is the only way for the world. This doesn't fit with the grammar, okay? Because what you have to do is you have to change, you have to change the way he starts the sentence from the way he ends the sentence. He changes his emphasis if you say not only is he our satisfaction for sin, but he's the only way anybody in the world gets satisfied for sin, gets satisfies God for sin, right? That doesn't work either in the grammar. There's only one way to read this verse. Not only is he the satisfaction for our sins, but he is the satisfaction for the whole world's sins. The holos cosmos. The whole world. That's the only thing in there. All right? Um, I'm sure some of you found that incredibly boring, but trust me, it is important. Okay? All right. Um, Let's look in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever follows his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says that he, uh, that he remains in him ought himself also um, excuse me, ought himself also walk just as he walked. Okay. All right, so the first thing we see in verse 3, I'm going to reread that. By this we know that we have come to know. This is a play on words. Paul is just all about this idea of knowing or knowledge, but what he's always doing is he's showing it to be relational, right? So the reason that we have this word, it's gnoskos both times, know, knowing, knowledge. But it's used in two different ways here. What he's saying is, uh, by this we know, are sure, are aware, are confident in, that we know relationally, have relationship with God. We know that we know him. We are sure that we have a relationship with him. Both of these are verbs, though, right? And he's arguing against people who, who were uh, proclaiming a noun, a special knowledge. They've attained a knowledge. And he's saying, no, it's a verb. It's an action of knowing God. So how do I, how do I know positively right now that I have a relationship with God? And he says, you follow his commands or you walk as he walked. Does anything about your life resemble Jesus? Are you actively progressing? Are you growing in Christ's likeness? Are you showing that you believe in a significant way that the gospel is true? 
or do you just understand it in your head? Are you actually getting out of the building that's on fire? Or are you just aware that it is? Did you just pray a prayer once? Look at verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother and sister remains in the light and there is nothing in him to cause stumbling. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says, it's not new, but it is new. Right? He says, I'm I'm not giving you a new commandment. And on the other hand, it is a new commandment. Right? So what does he mean by this? He's saying it's not new in that the prophets spent the whole Old Testament telling people it's not about the law. It's about how you're treating people and about how your heart is towards God. Jesus came and treated people a certain way, and he said it's not about these rules and regulations. James, in chapter 1, says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not uh, bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's to change your behavior. It's to take care of other people and stay away from sin. It's to live with significance. It's not about uh, figuring out this checklist of rules and just keeping it. He says, this is not new. It's not about the rules. It's about loving God and loving people. How do you love people? Tell them about God. There's nothing more loving than telling people about Jesus. And then he says, and on the other hand, it's new because you saw it lived out perfectly in the light that was Jesus. The whole Old Testament, they had types. So we we see all these Old Testament figures that they're types. They're supposed to look like Jesus will someday look. But what do they all do? They all fail. So none of them can perfectly represent how we should walk because they all fail. They all sin. And then we get to Jesus. And that's why he says it's new because you can see it. Because you can see what you're supposed to be doing in a perfect way. You can see the absolute example of what it means to be Christ-like. And then in verse 10, he says there's no cause for stumbling. So, um, are you stumbling in your life? No? You're not stumbling. Okay, that, that, all that means, it doesn't mean that you don't ever sin. It means you're not being held down by a sin. You're walking in the light. You're reflecting the positional reality in your life. You're fearing the Lord. You know what that means? Fearing the Lord means I'm afraid of being on the wrong side of God. It doesn't mean I'm afraid like of God. Like I'm not afraid to, to, to pray. I'm afraid of being in opposition to God. So if I'm walking in the light and I'm afraid of being in opposition to God, I'm certain of this positional reality So there's no cause for stumbling. Are you still stumbling? Like we see in verse 11, but the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you are stumbling, then you're uncertain, right? You're blind. So what do you do? Repent and believe. Listen, do you you want to know one of the... One of the fastest ways that you can see uh, Christ in your life, do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you love the body? I I don't care if you, you know, I get it. Sometimes maybe you don't want to sing that hymn or you don't want to sit in that chair for another 30 minutes, right? Okay, fine. But do you love the people around you? Does this place fill you up? Or do you come here and do you have certain people you just hate? You can't stand them. You don't want to talk to them. You have nothing for them. Listen, that should scare you because, because what's happening there is it's not reflecting the position of reality. So how do you know you have it? That should cause you to repent, confess, and believe so that you know that this positional reality is true, that you are one with God. 
saying you can't hate your brother. You can't walk in darkness. You have to walk as Jesus walked. Jesus loved his people. And he, and he didn't have certain people that he just was like, yeah, God, I can't stand that guy. I really kind of hate him. Or worse, right? We have some, sometimes we have some harsh feelings for our brothers and sisters. And that should scare you. This series might, might scare you a little bit. We're going to do this for, the, for five more weeks. It should scare you. Good. It should scare you to the extent that you grapple with the reality of, am I saved or not? And, and listen, what could be more important than figuring this out? I mean, I mean, honestly, if this scares you so much that you don't ever want to grapple with it, do you know what should scare you more? Dying and not knowing where you're headed. That's what should scare you. I want to grapple with this. I want to figure this out. I want to look into God's perfect law and say, okay, I mess up plenty, but I know that my positional reality with God is one, and no matter what happens, I walk out this door and I fall flat on my face and have an aneurysm, and that's it, I'm going to be with Jesus in heaven. I don't have to question it. So don't be more afraid of grappling with the reality and repenting and believing than you are afraid of the reality of of going into the afterworld without a knowing of where you're headed. That should scare you more. Am I saved? If you're wrong, if you don't grapple with this text and you don't understand if you're saved, that has eternal consequences. Now, could you be caught in a habitual sin right now that doesn't reflect your positional reality and still be saved? You can. Do you want to gamble? I mean, do you, do you want to just like roll the dice and hope that, hope that you're good? Because again, there's no point where God says, well, you know, you prayed that prayer at the summer camp when you were 12, so yeah. No. He wants you to know right here, right now, that you're one with him. So look into God's perfect law and adjust yourself to this. And then you'll be certain. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.